Well, thank you, gentlemen. And thank you all for the warm welcome that uh, myself and my family have received already this week. Luke is correct that we do share the same taste or distaste in football. However, uh, two things about that. Number one, I can take it as well as I can give it, so feel free <laughs> to fire back on that one. And secondly, I can invite you to join me in recruiting him to the oil side, which I understand is a problem, but we'll work on that in the time ahead as well. But I have truly felt welcomed into this place over the last couple of days. It's, I guess today marks a full week that, uh, that I've been here. It's been a great joy to get to know the staff, to share in some of their stories, their life stories. Some of the events happen around here. We've had multiple times to pray. That is one thing that I have definitely encountered. I, I had heard about it, that this was a church that was trying to emphasize prayer, not just in the service, but in a lifestyle that people live in the church, in the office, in their homes and beyond. And I can truly say that I have experienced very strong and rare glimpses of that. And so that is happening. And I encourage you to continue on in, uh, in that venture, to continue being a praying church. So thank you for the welcome. We look forward to a long and fruitful season that we will have all together as we follow the Lord's guiding for, for us as leaders, as a church. We'll see where he takes us into this community. Today we have the opportunity to begin a new sermon series. The sermon series that we have chosen to call A Sure Foundation. Now the most important part of any structure is the foundation. It doesn't matter if you're building a house, if you're building a road, even if you're trying to simply ice a cake, you need a sure foundation upon which to do that. The same can be said, metaphorically speaking, if we talked about a business, if we were talking about even a marriage, when two people come together to join together in the covenant of marriage, a question that I would sometimes ask them during marriage preparation is, what is the foundation of your relationship? What is your relationship based upon. And if a foundation is important in all of these areas, how much more so is a foundation important when we consider ourselves the body of Christ gathered together as a church? The foundation is critical. And so as we begin this new ministry season together, as we begin to build and develop relationships together, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to lay a shared foundation upon which we can all stand and I hope that it is a foundation upon which all believers, all who do know, and all who will come to know Jesus Christ can stand upon as well. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah said, the Lord will be the sure foundation for your times. A rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. And if you're a study into those words found in Isaiah 33, 6, you see that it's, these are words and terms that are looking forward to a future Messiah who is promised who we've come to know and understand to be Jesus Christ, who himself said, everyone who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and they beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had a foundation of rock. And so in this series that we're going to be journeying through over the next few weeks, we have an opportunity to lay a shared foundation based upon the words of Jesus Christ. And the words we're going to be specifically looking at are found in John chapter 15 through John 17. 
And not only will we have a chance to hear and read these words, but I pray that we will be putting them into practice in the weeks between the Sundays that we gather. This section of scripture is referred to as, as part of the farewell discourse. And it was spoken by Jesus mere hours before he was arrested and ultimately killed. Which might seem like a very curious place to begin, because when we read this story in the Gospels, it seems like it's the end of the story. But in a sense, it is the beginning. In a sense, it is the beginning of a new era. A new era when Jesus' followers would have to start to continue the mission that he began. That the followers that were with him that day, right through history up to today, would take hold of that mantle that he had begun and to carry it ourselves. And so each week, we're going to be uncovering a new theme of the Christian faith, and it's going to be like placing blocks into the shared foundation of theology upon which we can stand, upon which we may grow in our faith and in our trust in one another, and upon which we can build our relationships, we can build our homes, and we can build our church, upon which we can build our very lives as we place our trust in Jesus Christ. Now, the most important part of any foundation is by far that cornerstone, that very first stone that is put in place, because when that's put in place, everything is built upon it and off of it. Now, the Bible refers to Jesus as God's cornerstone. And so as we open this series here this morning, we do so by focusing upon him and the necessity of placing Jesus at the center of it all. Now, John 15 opens on the evening that Jesus will be betrayed, on the evening that he will be arrested prior to his crucifixion. Now, at the end of chapter 14, if you read the very last verse there, it says that, that they had just left, Jesus and his disciples had just left the upper room on what had turned out to be a roller coaster of events that evening. It had begun with them eating the Passover meal together, which was an enjoyable time as they were, they were together in, in intimate community and celebrating and lounging. But, but then it took this turn that the mood all changed. At one point, Jesus got up and, and disrobed and took on the, the role of a slave and started washing the grime off of their feet. And then he brought up this thing that he was going to be dying again, which they, they knew was coming, but didn't quite fully understand at this point yet. It was hard for them to understand because they had come to see him as the Messiah. But, but then it even got worse when Jesus started talking about betrayal. He said that Judas would betray him, and at this point, Jesus has already left to who knows where, to do who knows what. But Jesus also said that Peter would betray him. And, and they're having a hard time making sense of these things but now Jesus and his 11 remaining disciples are walking through the roads of Jerusalem. And they get through these narrow roads and eventually beyond the wall to where the countryside opens up and the air gets a little fresher. And as they walk a little deeper into the night, they come across vineyards. And, and it's that time of year when, when the blossoms are on the vines and there's this promise of a rich harvest that is just around the corner. And at some point in that dark night as they walk through that vineyard, Jesus must have reached out and grabbed hold of a vine. And as he grabs that vine and, and he shows it to his disciples, he begins to teach them about the most vital relationship that they and we will ever have when he says these words to them. 
He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear even more fruit. Already you are clean because the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, we don't see too many vineyards in Edmonton. It's not a common thing we encounter here. But, but this image of the vine in these vineyards were extremely common throughout Mediterranean region. Now, the closest thing we might find here in Edmonton is like, a, like ivy that you plant in your garden. And, and if you think of what an ivy plant looks like, it's got these long trailing vines that, that sprawl along a trellis. Maybe they climb up the side of your house. But next time you're in the Okanagan, if, if you choose to go buy a vineyard, have a look at the grapevines. They're very different than that. You see, grapevines, when we refer to the word vine, we're actually referring not to those sprawling branches along the trellis, but the vine is actually the trunk, the trunk of the grapevine. And, and the gardener or, or the vine dresser intentionally keeps that only about three and a half to four feet tall with kind of a knotty end on it. And out of that knotty end, extend the branches along the trellis. And the vine dresser is an expert in coaxing the highest yield of grapes from every vine. And that's done by ensuring a few things, such as good air circulation, as they tie them up and separate the branches, and they have good air circulation, and sunlight can hit them, and they have access for tending. And that tending requires the cleaning and the pruning of the healthy branches, but the removal of the unhealthy as well. All of this would have been very common knowledge to the disciples that night. They lived in this region where that was common practice and common knowledge. But you know what would have got their attention that night? Not this lesson on vines as far as how to garden and tend for them. They knew that. What would have got their attention that night is when Jesus said, I am the true vine. And he said, I am the true vine. Because you see, for, for centuries in Judaism, the metaphor of the vine had been used. But it had been used in reference to God's covenantal people, to, to the nation of Israel. And these are the people, if you think back to your Old Testament history, these are the people that God had planted and cared for and tended to and the people who were supposed to produce fruit for him in the place that he planted them. The psalmist in Psalm 80 says, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root, and it filled the land. And in this psalm, in Psalm 80, we see the basic story of God's redeeming work within his people as he rescued them from captivity in Egypt and then planted them in the promised land where they were to spread out, where they were to be his people where they were to live faithfully and where they were to be witnesses to the nations around them. But we know how that story ended. It ended where they had a, a propensity to wander. They, they tended to disobey quite often. Sure, there were glimpses of faith and there were moments of, of strength and faithfulness in their history, but in the end, they were destined to be cut off. God says through his prophet Isaiah, he says, what more could I have done for my vineyard than what I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? And in that passage in Isaiah 5, it goes on to speak of a future 
redemption, a future promise, which in John chapter 15 we are seeing the fulfillment of. As Jesus says, I am the true vine. He is taking the place of Israel as God's true planting. God's vineyard now has one vine. There is one vine, there is one way by which all people, regardless of heritage, regardless of background, regardless of faithfulness or sinfulness, there is one vine now and throughout history by which all people will enter into relationship with the Father. There is one vine by which all people can come to know the grace and the love of God. Now for more than three years, the disciples had walked side by side with Jesus Christ with this true vine. They had witnessed his teachings. They had experienced his miracles. They had come to believe him as the Messiah. They had come to see him as the one who was promised. And Jesus declares them. Jesus honors their belief and their faithfulness, and he declares them clean in this passage. Now, that word clean shares the same root as the word pruned, and they can be used in a very similar manner. Thereby, Jesus is announcing their status as fruitful branches in him. So if that is their position, and really, if you think of your own spiritual journey, if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if that is your position as fruitful branches in Christ, why on this night in which he will be arrested does he share this particular lesson? Well, it's because in a few hours he'll be taken from them. In a few hours he will no longer be walking beside them. And the work that he started the fruit he was producing, that they were watching him produce in the lives of others, that would pass on to be their responsibility as it is passed to us. We have a responsibility to carry on the work of Jesus Christ. But just as it was beyond them as it is beyond us to bridge the gap between us and God caused by our sin, so too it is beyond us. And it is beyond anything in this world to sustain our souls and to empower us to bear fruit. In both cases, we require the loving presence of a Savior. In both cases, we need Jesus Christ, the true vine, to be whom we're connected to. Because a branch has no power on its own. It can try as hard as it wants. It, it can sit on the ground and try and produce fruit. We can go off into the world and try, and try and produce good things on our own. We may have some measure of success. But on its own, regardless of how hard it tries, a branch cannot produce fruit, at least not fruit that will last forever. It's like if you want to get water from a hose, you can take a hose off the rack, you can take an entire, and you can shake that hose all you want. There's no water coming out of it until you attach it to the source. If you want to go home and watch TV, you can push that button on the remote control all you want, but until you plug it in, until you connect it to the source, you're not going to see any programs come on. But in both cases, the hose and the TV were created. They were intended for a purpose, and they do not find fulfillment in that purpose until they are connected to the source. And the same can be, true, can be said for our spiritual lives. If we are going to fulfill the purposes for which we have been created, if we are going to fulfill fruit that glorifies God, we must be connected to the source. We must be connected to the vine. And herein lies the choice. The choice that was 
upon the disciples that day and the choice that rests upon us this day. And it is the main thrust of this passage which Jesus summarizes in verse 5 when he says this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me you can do nothing of any heavenly See, this verse, verse 5, which is kind of the thesis of the whole passage, is the secret of the vine. And if you remember nothing else from this morning, remember this secret of the vine. That remaining in an intimate, enduring relationship with Jesus Christ is the difference between thriving or merely surviving. Your connection to the vine is the difference between thriving or merely surviving. All of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ are branches. All of us who have heard of his goodness and his love and his work for us and have come to believe in that and to accept it as ourselves and receive forgiveness for our sins through him, we're branches. And there's two paths that branches can walk. And the evidence of which which path you have chosen to walk all comes down to the fruitfulness. So for clarity, let's, let's define, what do we mean by fruitfulness, so that we are all on the same page as what fruitfulness refers to here? There's a couple things, actually, that fruitfulness can refer to. One of the common things that people might think of, as far as fruitfulness goes, is they might think of evangelism, where fruit is those people who we've brought to Christ, where through our words and through the lives that we've lived and shared in the world, people have seen and heard of God and they've come to accept him for themselves. And they've they've come into the church or into, into the kingdom of God. And through our evangelism, we count those people as fruit. There's also Christian virtues. You may hear the word fruit and immediately go to Galatians where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, these Christian virtues that the Holy Spirit within us causes to exist and causes us to be, have an ability to grow in and to share with the world around us. Paul in Philippians 1 also talks about the fruit of righteousness, where as we continue to grow in Christ, we continue to understand our position in Christ, and as that starts to make differences and change the way we think, behave, and, and relate to the world, we can grow in right relationship with God and with other people. Now, all of these things are valid. All of these things are valid understandings of fruit. And there's even potentials you could add some more to the list probably. So let's summarize this in one phrase. The simplest way I would suggest to you to understand fruit, what is fruit, is through this phrase. Anything beneficial that God produces in us and through us that ultimately brings him glory. You can see all three of those things fit within that phrase. And this is one of the simplest ways to look at it because there's multiple ways that God can reveal himself and express himself through us. But they'll all come back to the same thing. It is a, anything that is beneficial that God produces in us or through us that gives him glory. It comes from him and it is to him. We are the conduits through which that happens. Now we do need to be careful in how we apply this, however. Because fruitfulness is not a test. Fruitfulness is not a test by which the branch is measured in terms of how much productivity does that branch have within itself. Rather, 
Fruitfulness, fruit-bearing is the byproduct, is the evidence, it is the byproduct of our vital connection to the vine. You see, sometimes we get caught in this trap where we think, okay, well, I'm connected to the vine, so now that I'm connected to the vine, I need to go work hard. But that's taking the responsibility of fruitfulness back upon the branch. Where fruitfulness flows from the vine. It does not reside within the branch. It comes through the branch. Now, some may enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and be connected to the vine, but then they've wandered off. They've wandered off no longer abiding in Christ. If they're honest with themselves, they're abiding in themselves more than they are abiding in Christ. And that word thriving as a follower of Christ may seem like a very distant memory to them. And this is the reason that Jesus warns us of the two paths that branches can follow. And he lays them both out for us in verses 6 through 8 when he says, If you do not abide in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burnt. If you abide in me, however, and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Now, recently I heard the story, a testimony of a pastor sharing of a lady in, her car, in his congregation who for so many years had been a strong, committed, dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. She had lived so much of her life in service and in glorifying God. She was a great testament to many. And then without getting all the details, kind of a status of her life and a season of her life changed. And with that change came this gradual opportunity for other choices. Other opportunities came her way. And her priorities started to change a little bit. And over time, she started compromising little things, taking little steps in a slightly different direction where, where she would compromise her daily devotions. She would occasionally be too busy to go to church on the occasional week. She, she would become less and less frequent at her small group. But gradually, one decision, one compromise, which seemed harmless in and of themselves, which seemed harmless at first, but compiled over time, led her down a path that she had never intended to go down. And he had actually lost touch with her for a couple of years. And then this pastor bumped into her again and, and was wanting to reconnect with her. And as he heard the story of what had happened in her life, he heard a tale of moral failure. He heard that their marriage was struggling now. And he says, well, what about, why don't you come back to the church and maybe we can reconnect you with community. And she's like, I'm not even sure if I believe anymore. You know, stories like this where the, these gradual steps away from vitality and thriving in the vine onto this other path are more common than we might think. And that's so discouraging at times to hear that there's people who move in that direction. You know, as I share that story of this lady, it, it's very possible that the name of somebody in your life pops into your mind that has gone and made those same choices. It's even possible there's somebody sitting here who that name that pops into your mind is your own. And if that is the case, Jesus extends a warning in this passage in verse 6. He, he explains the natural consequences, not, not the punishment really, the natural consequences of choosing to go step by step in that direction. The direction where we see that they wither away that they're thrown away, that they wither, that they're picked up, and ultimately they are burnt. 
Now let's talk about this for a second, though, because we want to remember that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He's using symbolic language. We're still within the metaphor and the teaching that he's using. And there's a few ways that this has been interpreted. One way is to look at this path and the ultimate end of it to see it as eternal judgment, where unfruitful believers will lose their salvation. Where a person was a believer, but then over time they suddenly became uncommitted. They didn't stick with it. They, they wandered away. There wasn't any fruit, so they were removed eternally. Now, I personally want to tell you, I struggle with this interpretation a little bit. I, I think it takes the analogy a little bit further than what was intended within the setting in which it was given. And it also moves towards a works-based conditional salvation which would be contrary to some of the John's other teachings we find, such as in John 5, when, when Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. And then later on in John 10, when Jesus again said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Another possibility for understanding this is that, these are, that this path is referring to professing Christians who were genuinely saved, or, or sorry, who were never genuinely saved. This may be in reference uh, back to, and Jesus may very specifically here be speaking to the one who had just walked out the door earlier that night, who had fallen to this category, being Judas. One who was among them, but was never genuinely saved, and left and betrayed Jesus. These would be those people who are good at the religion, but not at the relationship part of Christianity. They're around the Christian crowds. They know the language. They know the rituals. But in their hearts, if they really looked into themselves, their hearts never truly believed and accepted that free gift of Jesus Christ. To keep with the analogy and the language of the vineyard here, they visited the vineyard. They were familiar with the branches, but they never got connected to the vine. John talks about this in 1 John 2, for example, when he says, they went out from us, but they did not really ever belong to us. In 1 John chapter 2. And the third option is that this is in reference to Christians who are saved, but who will lose rewards at the time of judgment. And considering this third option in, in light of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, no one can lay a foundation other than Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, any of those things, their work will be shown for what it is. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. But then in verse 14, he says, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. However, if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet be saved. A sense of losing of rewards at judgment. Now, most commentators and myself included among them would agree with either the second or the third option that we find within this. But if you feel like you may be on this path, we can look backwards and say, oh man, what is my eternal destiny? Or you have another option. We can look forwards. We can say, that's who I was, but is no longer who I seek to become. I seek to change path. I seek to get off who I was to get away from that path of drying up and withering and being thrown away and ultimately into the fire. I can choose to get off that path and get back onto the other path of abiding in Christ. 
And if you feel like that may be the case that you're in, I want to encourage you to heed this warning this day, but to remember that it is never too late, that you have never wandered too far from God, because Jesus always stands ready with his arms open to welcome you back, ready to forgive, ready to restore, that you may begin bearing good fruit through your life yet again. It is never too late for Jesus Christ, if you will turn to him. So these are the two destinies of the branches. Wither and dry up, or abide and thrive. And if we choose to abide in Christ, and if his word abides in us, then just like the disciples, he will declare us to be clean, that we will be deemed these branches with that vital connection to the vine. And then the implications of this are seen throughout verses 7 and 8. Where first we see that there's a new power in prayer Jesus talks about. Where ask anything you wish and it will be done for you. That sounds like an amazing promise. Ask anything you wish and it will be done for you. What would happen if you said that to your kids? Ask anything you wish and it will be done for you. (laughs) Even as I ask that question, we know that there's something going on here. Because Jesus is smarter than us, and if we know better than to say that to our kids, he knows better than to say that to us. (laughs) So there's a little more going on here. So what's happening? Well, first of all, we need to understand that this is not saying that, that if I'm good enough or if I behave myself enough, that God is somehow bound and obligated to give me whatever I ask for. There are theologies out there that will look towards those sorts of things, and I, I think they tend to emerge from a materialistic heart or from a worldly perspective. And, and you may even start to head towards what's referred to as a prosperity gospel in some of these ways, the, the name it and claim it or the blab it and grab it kind of idea, where if you say something, you ask for something, God is obligated to give it to you, and you've caught him somehow in his word. But what's truly going on here is this. Jesus is saying that if we abide in him, if we allow his word to be internalized within us, then we will be people who have bent our wills to his revealed will. Where it's not about us trying to behave ourselves enough where we try and bend God's will to ours. If we are abiding in Christ and his word is internalized within us, then we are people who are bending our will towards his will. And as the theologian D.A. Carson said, the prayer of a truly obedient Christian cannot fail since they can ask nothing that is contrary to the will of God. You see, when we're in this abiding perspective, when we're in the Word, when we are abiding in Christ, we no longer seek after the things of the world we gradually, progressively, more and more, day by day, start to seek after the things of heaven, after the things of Christ. And suddenly our prayers change. Our desires, our views, our appetites change. And they start to become more in line with God's. That's what he's talking about here, is that if we are abiding in Christ and internalizing his word and his example and his reality in our lives, our prayers will be of the nature where God couldn't help but say yes. Because in saying yes, it glorifies him, not glorifying us. And if God is glorified through this, then we fulfill as humanity the purpose for which we were created, to bear fruit through the empowering 
of Jesus Christ. So as we've been discussing here, that's the secret of the vine, is to remain in that intimate, enduring relationship with Jesus Christ so that we may spiritually thrive and not just merely survive as we go through this life. And so in the short time that I have remaining here, let's quickly define what exactly does abiding look like. We've talked about what the secret of the vine is. We've talked about what fruit looks like. Let's not talk about what, it, what would it mean to abide. Now, again, this is, uh, this is a situation where I could probably go on for an hour giving you examples of what abiding looks like because there are so many ways that, that fruit can be generated, that God can lead us to different situations. But they all kind of come back to a central principle. If we were to list off examples for an hour, we would all find that they all have a central principle that they all hold in common, which is what we find in verse 9 and 10 of this passage, where Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commands and abide in his love. Now in this passage, we see an instruction and we see an example that's given to us. In Christ's love, Christ himself stands at the center between God and mankind. And the love of the Father runs from the Father through Jesus to the disciples. Now here the command to abide is slightly different. Here it says, abide in my love. It's slightly changed a little bit. But we have a call to abide in Christ's love because as it goes from God through Jesus to the disciples, so too our love goes in the reverse direction as we love God through loving Christ, through loving Christ from the disciple to Christ to God. And so he is the one, it is he in whom we need to be placing our focus upon when we talk about how do we abide. And there's a verse that will really give us some further instruction to this. There's a couple times in, in John, in John 14, in 1 John 2, as well as in verse 10 here, where we see that love is equated with obedience. Love and obedience are considered equal in this. In 1 John chapter 2, or you'll see this, but here in John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love them and show myself to be with them. Two basic things in here. Number one, we got to know his commands. Number two, we can't just know them. We have to put them into practice. We have to be actually applying what we're learning. And you have heard this before, I'm sure. It's my first week here, but I'm pretty confident you've heard this before, but you're going to hear it again. We cannot ignore the importance of being in the Word. We cannot ignore the importance of reading our Bibles, of meditating upon Scripture, memorizing Scripture, by giving the Holy Spirit that resides within us that raw material it needs to grow and develop us and help us understand how to respond and react in the situations in which we will find ourselves. The Bible is God's revelation to us. If you have a question about life or faith or direction or morality, God has something to say about it. And you can find direction for those things within his word. In the Bible is where we learn about who God is. It's where he speaks to us. It's where we learn what he likes, what he doesn't like. It's where we learn how to grow in relationship and to relate to God and to one another. The strongest Christian people I know are in the word on a regular basis. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think that's a coincidence. There's a connection that happens with being in the Word. And if you have been a believer for any period of time, I think you know what I'm talking about when I say that 
when you're in a season of regularly spending time in God's Word, you feel closer to Him. You feel more connected to God. It seems like you're better prepared to deal with the struggles of life that will come our way. It's been said you're either in the midst of a struggle, coming out of a struggle, or about to go into one. Whether you're in one, coming out of one, or one's around the corner, struggle is a fact of life. And we are in the Word, proactively in particular in the Word, we are better prepared to deal with those struggles that come our way in a godly manner. When we're in the Word, we have the ability to extend help to others. And it just seems at times that we have more of a loving spirit about us too when we're in the Word more often. You know, for Nadine and I, I know there's a stark difference when we are in a regular Bible study or in a small group and during a season when we may not be. We've seen it in our own lives. It makes a big difference when we are regularly in the Word and when we're not. And there are many opportunities here at West Meadows by which you can get involved. There are classes, there are studies, there are groups. Even apart from what's happening here at the church, if you have a phone or an iPad or if you have a computer at home, we live in an era where there is increased access to things we should be avoiding, but there's also increased access to things that we should be engaging in. We never in this history have we had so much access to podcasts and teaching and online Bible studies and groups and versions of the Bible. There's versions of the Bible you don't even know exist that you can find online for free. There's so much opportunity to connect into the Word of God and to learn these commands of Jesus. But as I said before, it is not enough just to know them. We then need to take that step of applying them. They need to become more than just a cognitive exercise in which we live. And as we apply these to our lives where it makes a difference in how we think, how we act, and how we relate, we'll start to see fruit. Fruit growing through because of our connection to the vine. We wanted to give you a bit of an opportunity. If you don't know where to start today, there's two things you can do. Number one, you can speak to Dr. Luke or myself. We would be glad to chat with you about this about how to get connected into a regular connection with some people or in the Word. We've also included these little booklets in your bulletins this morning. A simple little tool. But if you're at a point of thinking, I'm not sure where to begin, or I'm at the end of a study and I need a new one, this might be one that you want to consider. It is a simple little six session, six days, six week, however you want to apply it. Walk through, what is it called? God at the center, Habits for Spiritual Growth. Some of the themes that are in these six weeks are very much related to what we've been talking about this very day. And they can help you get started in the Word and applying that in your daily life. Discipleship is not just a matter of knowledge. It's not just a matter of knowing who God is. But taking it to that step of application where we have this vital connection with Him to our inner life. At the end of the passage, Jesus gives us this grandest result of abiding in Him that on top of all we've talked about today. When he says, I have told you all of this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You see, the Christian life was never meant to be a dreary, unfulfilling existence. It was never what Jesus intended for us. And if you have chosen to accept Christ, and if you are seeking to daily abide within him, then you already have everything you need to thrive spiritually in this life. And you are equipped to thrive personally, relationally, in your home, as a people of this church, to the point where we can cause West Edmonton to sit up and take notice that something different's going on because of Jesus Christ. And if that happens, it happens to bring glory to the Father. Now, as we close here this morning, I ask you to consider where you are this day. 
If you have never taken that step of faith, if you have never taken that step of placing your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I invite you to do that today. The Bible is very clear that if we will believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved, that we can become connected to the vine. Now, if you have questions about that, come find myself or Pastor Luke after the service. We would love to have a conversation with you and talk more about that. But do not let this day or this moment pass if you feel something prompting you inside to make that commitment today. Others here may find themselves in a season of wandering. Perhaps you're at a time when you're abiding more in yourself than abiding in Christ. And when I say the words withered and dry, you would say, that's, that's me spiritually. If that's the case, let me remind you once again, you are no more than one step, no more than one decision away from coming back and starting to abide in Christ again. You can return to him, and he will receive you back. And with a repentant heart, he will forgive you and help you to start bearing good fruit again to the glory of God, and you will come to know the full joy of Christ once more. Or perhaps today you're here and you can say that you presently are abiding in Christ. You are seeing fruit in your life, and if that's the case, then praise the Lord that that's where you're at. And if that is who you are, I encourage you in this, to be an example, to be a witness to those around you, to be an example of fruit-bearing in this place and in your homes and in your relationships. Because, ladies and gentlemen, let us not settle for merely surviving. We are created for so much more. We are created for thriving through the power of Jesus Christ and to the glory of the Father. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your revelation. That you have revealed to us your Son your love, your truth, and your grace. Lord, at times it can seem like an overwhelming amount of material to understand and principles to internalize, but Lord, we know that with the simple faith of a child that we can place our trust in you, acknowledging that Jesus did it all. He paid the price for us. And that you exalted and glorified him through his obedience to you. Lord, may he be our teacher and our example of what it looks like to walk in obedience to the Father, that we may bear fruit for your kingdom, for your glory, and have your joy as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name.